Hello and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropists of the regenerative movement. People who are committed to and showcase qualities of planetary leadership. My name is Julian Guderlei. I'm committed to a world that allows people from all walks of life to thrive. We just launched a Patreon, so make sure to check this out. Um, as you know, I'm the host and creator of Green Planet, Blue Planet, and your help is truly appreciated. In today's episode, my guest is Professor Marope. Professor Marope has worked with UNESCO and the World Bank on enhancing the contribution of education to accelerated and shared growth, competitiveness and inclusive development, promoting holistic, balanced and sustainable education sector development, and also catalyzing progress toward education for all, the education for all goals particularly in those areas that lag behind most, such as early childhood care, literacy, and adult education. Education quality and relevance, as well as education equity and inclusion. So with these words, welcome to today's episode. Welcome, Professor Marope. Thank you very much, Dr. Goodlay, and uh, thanks for hosting me. Yeah, absolutely. So Professor Marope, as a global thought leader on the future of education and learning, um, you're known to embrace education for a regenerative mindset rather than just education for sustainable development. Can you shed a little bit of light on that preference and, and, and that context? Thank, thanks. Um, be, before I talk about my preference uh, for the education perspective, let me just start by highlighting that the sustainable development agenda is rooted in a corrective or remedial framework or a frame of mind, which is about righting the wrongs that our, our ancestors did to planet, to planet Earth, the wrongs we continue to do to planet, planet Earth in all its colors, the, the green, the brown, and the blue planet. Uh, the, the sustainable development agenda therefore emerges out of the recognition that um, the planet is our source of sustenance. And therefore we use resources uh, in the planet that the planet avails us to survive and to thrive. But these resources are not infinite. And because they are not infinite, we have to use them sustainably. So that's the sustainable development agenda. And then the sustainable, sorry, education for sustainable development uh, is part of the sustainable development agenda. Mm -hmm. And it's really about raising collective conscience and awareness, going beyond awareness to advocacy and even to accountability and action, impactful actions that are all about improving the sustainability of the planet we live on, the sustainability so that it can sustain us, because as I said, it's our source of sustenance, but not only to sustain us, but to sustain future generations. And it's about noticing and being aware and taking responsibility and accountability that the actions we do on and in the planet have far-reaching consequences. And therefore, hopefully those actions should have positive consequences. This is really what sustainable 
development education, uh, education for sustainable development is about. Now, the regenerative mindset to education goes much further than that. And you could summarize it like, okay, yes, we inherited the planet from our ancestors. They may not have handled it op optimally, but we borrowed the planet from our future generations. And therefore, we must go beyond sustaining the planet to actually improving on it so that when we return it to our lenders, which is our future generations, we return a healthier, richer planet that is capable of self-renewal and that have um, regenerative capacity. So that's why I lean more towards a regenerative mindset through my, my, my whole perspective uh, to education. And here the words we use really matter. If I say to you, hey, uh, Dr. Goodlie, let's uh, sustain this dialogue. I just say, let's keep it going. That's about sustainability. If I say, let's conserve, which is another word we use a lot with respect to the planet, let's conserve this planet. It's like, okay, let's use it with a lot of, um, how do I say, humility and efficiency. If I say, let's restore our dialogue, it's like our dialogue broke down and we need to restore it back to what it was. But if I say, let's regenerate, let's accelerate, it's a very different mindset. And that's why I prefer the regenerative mindset, the regenerative pathways as my perspective to education. Beautiful, yeah, definitely. We, you know, we've, we've borrowed this world from our future generations from our future or we are ancestors for the future and so um yeah it's not just about sustaining what was but really really building in alignment with the intelligence of nature um so you for over half a decade you've been the world's chief executive for global norms and standards of curriculum um and i'd, I'd be curious to understand you know a, a bit more about how you've integrated that mindset you just explained into the guidance of future curriculums Hmm, that's a bit of a toughie. <laughs> yes, in, indeed. Um, I led uh, UNESCO's, uh, and by UNESCO, you mean, you already mean almost the whole world, not the whole world, but almost the whole world, if you look at the membership of the states. Um, I led the Global Center of Excellence in Curriculum, and to infuse this regenerative approach to education and to life, actually. Uh, I instigated what I called a, a repositioning and reconceptualization of curriculum for the 21st century, a, a global paradigm shift. Because when we start talking about mindset and pathways, how we think, not just what we do, becomes very important. So I articulated this paradigm shift as a, as a global point of reference that when countries that are members of UNESCO, any country or any entity for that matter, thinks about how to improve their curriculum for the future, they can use this paradigm as a point of reference. The details of the paradigm don't belong in this conversation, it's a conversation for another day. But I just want to highlight 
a few aspects of the paradigm that aligns with this um, the regenerative mindset and the regenerative perspective. Uh, the first one is that the paradigm has multiple dimensions, but I want to use three to demonstrate the alignment with the regenerative approach, which is that I propagated that we should see curriculum as an integrative core of an education system, that the education system has multiple sectors and subsectors, and that these need to work as a system, we often call them education systems, but in reality, we have all these sub, sub elements of education uh, coexisting, but not really integrated in a systemic way. But the curriculum should be conceived as that core that holds these systems together. And that's basically the strength of the curriculum because when you design a curriculum, you imply teachers, you imply specialists of different uh, subjects and, and learning areas. You imply assessment. You implicate physical resources where this learning is going to take place. You implicate materials, resources, consumables. You implicate assessment. You implicate equipment. I can go on and on. So the curriculum really holds an education system together, which is its strength but it's also its, its weakness. Like in any ecosystem, an ecosystem balances and thrives because every element of it works together, work, is healthy to start with, but also mutually reinforces each other. So when, when we say this, this, when I said this is the strength of the curriculum, but it's also its weakness, it's because Anything that goes wrong in any of these aspects, if we don't have good teachers, that curriculum will not be implemented. If we don't have uh, books and materials, if we don't have an assessment that assesses the intentions of the curriculum, if we don't have learners that are facilitated to learn what is intended in that curriculum, the curriculum becomes just a document on a shelf. So the system, the regenerative uh, mindset also adopts a systemic approach because the strength and the regenerative capacity of a system comes from the mutually reinforcing and symbiotic relationships of the aspect of the system. That's one example. The second example is that I emphasize that curriculum should be seen as a transformative force and that curricula can transform societies and can transform mindsets. What you teach people, people refer to history a lot, you know, from former colonial, colonialized countries, what they were taught as their history shaped who they thought they were. And as, as history was rewritten, it changed the new generations and what, what they think, how they think and their identity and so on you know, how we represent women in curriculum, in materials can foster certain gender stereotypes or it can foster uh, gender equality. So curriculum has the regenerate, sorry, the transformative power that can shift uh, so social paradigms and social way of thinking about many, many things. 
And the last example I'll use because we don't have too much time is that I emphasize that curriculum has to be seen and, and thought of as a lifelong learning system in its own right. That if we want curricula to prepare future lifelong learners, curricula themselves have to continuously be self-renewing. So the old style huge curriculum reforms with a huge time lags that takes years, sometimes decades, a decade or more to transform a curriculum doesn't work anymore. What mm -hmm. works is that the curriculum has to be continuously self-renewing and updating itself if we can count on it to be a guide that can transform learners into lifelong learners. So essentially, these are some of the ways I just, I'm just taking a few examples, how I have, you know, um, infused the regenerative perspective into the future norms and standards for curriculum through this paradigm shift. The global uh, future competence framework, which I also developed and uh, while I was at at IBE UNESCO with two other colleagues. If you look at the core competences, what we call the macro competences, they are about essentially a regenerative approach. They're about building regenerative capacity because I, it emphasizes the first most important competence a learner should have or any global citizen should have is knowing how to learn. Because if you know how to learn, you have acquired the capacity to adapt, the agility to adapt to your context, whether that is taking up new opportunities or facing new challenges, but also when what you have learned becomes obsolete because you know how to learn, you will learn anew. So you could say knowing how to learn is the, is the fuel of, of life or the source of human resilience. And this is about constantly improving oneself, regeneration of, of oneself. Uh, you know, others like self-agency, you can take when you have time and to the listeners, when you have time, you can take a look at the complete framework, but it's underpinning value is about constant self-renewal because the curriculum is a lifelong learning tool itself. Beautiful. I love that you bring it back to lifelong learning and, and this, you know, necessity for curriculums to be well, almost real time because we, we're going through exactly such a big paradigm shift also when it comes to technology just in the last 20 years. And I'm sure it's going to continue to keep going in many ways that, um, you know, real time and, and, and the applicability to the local, you know, the local place where learners are absorbing that curriculum is extremely important. I want to go a little bit into the technology piece of it, because I know, you know, you're, you're a global thought leader on the future of education, and you've, you've talked just in the last few, few months alone on the AI for Good Global Summit, the AI-inspired World Summit, Atlas of the Future, Fixing the Future of Education. And so today you're here with us, and I'd love to hear your perspective on the role of science and technology in this new learning paradigm you just you just um, pointed out. Okay, thank you very much. 
if if we if we hook this question back to what is the most important competence a global citizen should have, and we said it's learning how to learn, uh, and then re related to the current reality that an average education system is failing at enabling learners to become effective learners, never mind effective lifelong learners, which means that it is. Um, the systems are failing to enable these kids, the learners, actually not just kids, both young and adult learners, to acquire their self-regenerative capacity. And that is very, very uh, challenging. Now, where the science and technology to me comes in is that the sciences of learning are all about doing research, on how humans learn. And if we understood from the sciences of learning how humans learn, and we could use the scientific-based evidence to improve the way we facilitate learning, perhaps we can have a more effective approximation at enabling learners to become effective lifelong learners. So there is, a, in my view, a stream of work under the sciences of learning that could feed into the practice of how we facilitate learning and enable us to uh, uh, facilitate learners to acquire this uh, regenerative capacity. And that's why to me, the sciences of learning should really be mainstream, not just into global education policy, but into global international uh, education policies, but most importantly into practice, particularly the practice of the frontline facilitators of learning, which is teachers. So this is to me the, the importance of science, not just science in general, but the sciences of learning. And uh, perhaps uh, fortuitously, the advances in the sciences of learning uh, have been facilitated by technological advancement. The fact that uh, neuroscientists are now able to observe brain activity during learning and to be able to attribute certain uh, activity to certain types of learning or to the impact of certain learning on brain activity is, is quite important. So we see technology and science feeding each other to enhance our understanding of how, how we learn. Now, the, when it comes to technology, to me, the power of technology is that it enables us to do in education what is humanly impossible. The most of the challenges of education that we face, limited access, particularly to the, to the disadvantaged, poor quality, poor learning outcomes, you know, inequity of teaching quality in terms of the quality of the teachers we have, weak continuous assessment that does not really give us the moment by moment monitoring of a learner's acquisition of the developmental progression in the competences that we are trying to facilitate them to acquire. Technology enables us to do all these things that are quite difficult to do humanly. So as I was saying, I think last week in Atlas of the Future, to me, it seems that the future of learning 
is at the nexus of science, technology, and human ingenuity. So that is why the two elements to me are quite important if we are to facilitate people to know how to learn. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot coming in on the technology side of things that will require us to really go with with the times in a way that you know older generations um, need to just be as much lifelong learners as younger generations, really. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So over your career, you've you've garnered a lot of experience in academia, in research capacity building international civil service, including the World Bank and, and the UN. And, and so what do you consider are the biggest challenges, um, you know, rolling out global curriculums and, and, and the education sector at large? Um, to, there are many challenges, but to me, the most uh, profound challenge is the impatience of the global education community with understanding how the education system functions. The impatience in developing robust system di diagnostics tools that can um, point to us where systemic failures are that lead to system malfunctioning that leads to this feeble impact that I was referring to on learning. The rest to me are, are symptoms. The poor quality of education while education schools are running is symptomatic that something is not functioning well in the system. The inequalities or inequities of access, which we chase so after, to me is also another symptom that the system, not just the education system, but other systems that support the education system are, are malfunctioning somehow. But if we do not, in my view, pay enough attention to understand how the education systems function and to be able to address those causes of what we call key, key challenges in education. Anytime say, what are the key challenges in education? It's access, it's quality, it's low learning outcomes, it's this, it's that. But these, to me, yes, they are challenges, but they are symptoms of something that is more profoundly malfunctioning, which is the education system. And it took me quite, I must say, quite a bit of chasing these symptoms myself to turn around and say, but what is the, what is the fundamental cause? So if I were to say something, I would suggest that we need to know how to build resilient and impactful education systems that as I said, become lifelong learning systems in their own right so that they can stay current and they can stay impactful all the time. I think that's a big gap that we still have. And, you know, I include myself in, in this challenge because, uh, as I say, as you said, I'm part of the community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, you know, this is also at the brink of a paradigm shift where we, you know, for decades and decades, we've, we've planned very centralized and now there, there's a whole new way of thinking. And you mentioned it earlier, this is also one of the core, you know, the core focus topics of this podcast. It's around 
understanding truly that we are ancestors of the future generations. And so in your view, when we kind of zoom out into a seven generational perspective, um, what's the most critical impact we can make today to serve seven generations into the future? I think the most critical impact, and I, this may come out as heresy, um, is to, to, to take our foot a little bit off this paddle of um, performance-oriented, outcome-oriented, you know, outcome-based, outcome-based, this and that. Because these, this pressure to show outcomes and show impact is partially what causes practitioners in the system to take shortcuts, to, to take a short-term perspective to something which is long-term in its nature. If we are serious about transforming how an education system works, if we are serious about uh, uh, taking care of the planet in a regenerative way, the impact, the outcomes of our actions will surface probably when we are either very old or dead, but at the bare minimum, when we no longer hold our positions where our promotions and our incentives are based on outcomes. So I think maybe we need to look at outcomes, yes, but have many, many steps of intermediate outcomes and focus more on incremental continuous processes, sorry, improvements that lead to the ultimate outcomes that we need. So I would say that improving an education system outlasts the term of a minister of education, for instance. But ministers are under pressure to show what they did during that short term. And imagine you, you sit on your, at your desk your first day as the minister, you start thinking what you can do. It takes probably a couple of months to clear those thoughts, to, to get the buy-in of your team, to start articulating them, to start implementing them. By the third year or so, you start to see this, the programs take root and your next election is around the corner. So what are we incentivizing people to do? I'm just using ministers because they have a very definite term, but everybody underneath them has a, a very definite annual assessment on outcomes. So I've often thought of myself, how realistic is this when we want to, do, to take actions that are transformative, but that are impactful seven generations down the line, should we not focus on building resilient systems and focus on building that impact that will certainly at some point, if we focus on the systems, at some point they develop their own momentum and that's where the regenerative capacity comes in and they would become that propeller that continues to produce positive impact and positive results seven generations down the line. So I'm hoping that one of the, the, the seven generational perspective, one of its positive impact could be to tame our, our tendency to want results yesterday. That's what I hope 
the, the, this could help us do. That's not to say we shouldn't focus on results, but we should be realistic about the, the, the term within which we can visibly uh, see and, and measure these results. Yeah, beautifully put. I'm really, um, I'm really happy the, the way you're expressing that because, you know, having having spent your career in very prestigious um, institutions and you know driving driving these dialogues forward, I think um, it it's refreshing to know that that you know you hold a similar perspective there, which is overall the cycles within the system are somewhat broken they need they need that renewal the most right where where we're actually focusing on true resilience rather than just on short-term outcomes and absolutely hear you um that doesn't doesn't mean we're not focused on results but maybe their priority just like if i were to make a metaphorical comparison um in economic terms we now come to understand more and more that profit for profit's sake is is not really the path of the future it's much more where we came from, uh, historically speaking, and so going forward, economy needs to learn from you know people and planet-focused um, pathway forward, where, where we're truly regenerative with the intelligence of the Earth. And so, obviously, for education and a seven-generational perspective, that that will that will inevitably come as well. And and so, yeah, I'm really grateful for your answer there. Thank you. So. Let's, let's lean a little bit further into this because often in this podcast, what comes up is this idea, this notion of moving at the speed of trust. And so for me, that seems to be kind of in, I wouldn't say in competition, but somewhat in a, <laughs> like, yeah, it's like a paradox to what you just pointed at, which is this urgency of indispensable need for outcomes and results, right? And so you know, you're frequently sharing about the transformation of education and the learning systems and the future forward systems. So how do, how do you see that balance truly taking place um, bet between moving at the speed of trust and this need for, for speed almost? Yeah, you, are, you are absolutely right that this, this may sound contradictory, but um, it's also that we, we need to move at the speed of trust but we are in, a, in an environment of constant, uh, sometimes even disruptive change. And, and trust takes time to, to build. And when I saw this, this question, I thought, hmm, yeah, but what, what this really, uh, to me, it's not contradictory. Moving at the speed of trust is not contra contradictory to having a sense of agency to act and to have um, impact that is systemic and long lasting and that is regenerative. But the way I see it is that moving at the speed of trust, if I can use an analogy, there's this expression, I don't know which African language it comes from, but the expression goes something like, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And going together means building the trust. Trust builds ownership. Ownership builds commitment. Commitment builds the understanding to contextually be 
uh, how do I say, to always be adapting whatever you are doing, whatever transformation you are doing to the demands of the context, but also for the transformation to change the context for the better. So in my view, the building of trust may be a slow, a slow takeoff, but once the trust is there, the very trust is the propeller of that speed that we need. If you don't move at the speed of trust and you, you move mm -hmm. alone, you will always be breaking down and you'll always be starting again and you will never build anything with the regenerative capacity that we've been harping on. So to me, the, tr the trust is the, it's like building a business. At the beginning, you may have to work even at a loss, but if you build a good foundation for that business, you, sh you should expect a boom. And the boom will make up more than make up for the loss. And to me, that trust is the engine of that boom that we should expect if we moved at the speed of trust. And it ties well with the point I was making about the impatience with understanding our systems. Trust to me is the, is the, is the social, um, how should I say, the social underbelly, the social foundation of everything that we do. And therefore, if we don't move at the speed of trust, we may move very fast, yes, because we have a sense of urgency, but we will collapse and start again and again. So it is, to me, the two are complementary and it's, it's maybe less of balancing, but more of a, a continuum that you build the trust, but it takes a life of its own and the trust will propel the will propel and become the propeller of that agency of transformation. I, I think we can see many, many times how, how development projects start. And because people have to perform and they show performance indicators and so on, they move and leave the people who should own and continue to grow that intervention they were trying. They leave them behind and move alone. But very soon when this project ends, nothing is left behind. So trust may seem expensive time-wise, but I think it pays huge dividend, especially the dividend that allows us now to move at a, at a speed that is um, required. And that gives us the, the possibility of having that sense of urgency in transformation. Yeah, beautifully put, really eloquently put. And, you know, that that resilience, that that trust, I think, are fundamental pillars to the pathway forward. And maybe it's not how we used to build systems in, in previous generations, but it's we're at this pivotal point in our planetary evolution where it, it is becoming very obvious. Right. Um, so I'm really grateful for how you've worded this. I have a last question for you um, around, you know, something I, I call Earth vision or your dream for the planet. So in conclusion, maybe that's a good way to say it. How can we be good ancestors for those future generations? It's a real dream, <laughs> I must say. Um, but I don't think it's far-fetched. But my dream of, of the planet would be for, for us to have a planet 
that is um, healthy and continuously improving, but most importantly, to have an environment where these words that we banter around, like equity, fulfillment, enjoyment of life, and, and so on, are real, really experienced by every global citizen. It's a, it's a big dream. And that they could be achieved not at the detriment of the planet, but during the enrichment of the planet. So that's, that's the dream that I have. And I think it's a dream that we, will, um, we should work towards. You, I think you may re re be aware that the organization that I work for now, its mantra is that our value is the heritage we will bequeath future generations. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on this interview today, making the time, sharing your, your mission and your message with the world. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Professor Marope, for, for everything you've just, you've just shared in this episode. Is there anything else you'd like to point out or any shout out you'd like to make at the end? Uh, just, just to say that, uh, you know, taking a regenerative perspective is our collective responsibility. And that in our small way, each one of us in their small corner, if we give it our best, we will, uh, we will make it, but it has to be a collective responsibility. And lastly, I want to thank you again for hosting me. Thank you very much. Here we are. This is your host, Julian. Thanks for listening. I hope you truly enjoyed this episode of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast and received some insights, knowledge, and a form of learning that you can directly apply to your life, relationships, and business, and the way you show up as your best self for the world. Did you know that we just launched a participatory Patreon asking you for your contributions of content and gifting a monthly subscription to our shared mission? The Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, video interviews and community is growing and together we can make it count and carry big ripples. So go and check out the Patreon. It's linked out in the show notes of every episode. The Patreon for Green Planet, Blue Planet and the community we're building together. Thanks for choosing to support with your time, money or content. And that being said, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe, review the show, share it with a friend, spread the love and have yourself a stellar day. All the best. Mm -hmm.